Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Kristen McGrew. I'm the director of Children's Ministries. Isn't it a gorgeous day outside? Oh, it's like the perfect day for me. Um, thank you for joining us, whether you're with us here in person or online. It's an honor for us to be able to, to do church with you, and we're happy to have you here. Um, today is Communion Sunday, so if you're joining us online, you're going to want to grab your elements so that you can join us at the end of the service, Take Communion. And for the rest of us, we're going to stand and pray the Lord's Prayer together as we get the service started. So if you guys will stand with me. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Father God, thank you so much for just your awesomeness for the creation that you've given us to, to live in and be a part of, God. It's amazing to look around and see all of the details that you've put into every single part of our lives. God, help us to remember that you are in charge, that you're bigger than all of the things that we're facing in our lives, God. So whether our lives are in chaos or turmoil, or if we're experiencing loss or joy, God, that you're with us through every bit of it, God. And just help us to remember to rest in your presence, to trust in knowing that you have got it and you're in charge. God, I ask that you be with us during this service. Open our hearts and our minds for what you have in store for us today. Be with Pastor Scott as he brings this message and our worship team as they lead us in worship, God. We're so grateful for you and for who you are and for who we are in you. God, I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church. Glad you're here this morning. We'd love to invite you to lift your voices with us in worship.
to intro this song, um, uh, God just brought a verse to my mind that, uh, that he's laid on my heart all week. And it comes out of Philippians uh, chapter three, it's verse eight. And here Paul says, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And this is somebody who, uh, in Paul, who, who lost his uh, position of authority in, uh, in society, lost the respect of his peers. He gave up uh, his financial security. He gave up his, his uh, physical security, his safety, his health, and eventually even his life, all for the sake of knowing Jesus and connecting others to him. And according to this verse, he says, all that is trash. That's all garbage compared to what he finds in Christ. So Paul sees that, that he finds everything he needs and more uh, in, in Jesus. Friends, we can have that same satisfaction in God today. So as we come, as we sing about, uh, about finding all that we need and more in God, I, I just pray that, uh, that you would come and sing with us and lift those truths up. Amen. Fill me up with all I need. 
Contrary to popular belief, Celebrate Recovery isn't just for alcohol and drug use. That's the stigma that kills people. Fun fact, only about 30% of the people that come to Celebrate Recovery are there for some kind of substance use disorder. The majority of people are there are to address their sin natures, whether that be shame, guilt, anxiety, sexual addiction, food addiction. Uh, maybe they spend too much money. Maybe they're they're angry and, 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 and they're hollering at the family before they get out of the church parking lot. 
There's no shame in trying to seek healing for that. And it's designed for everybody. We are so blessed to have a church that embraces the healing power of Celebrate Recovery. Now, I know everybody's not gonna show up on Monday nights. Not everybody's gonna step into a step study, but if you're here October the 8th and October the 15th at either 8.30, 10, or 11.30, you're gonna hear a little bit more about Celebrate Recovery. Well, good morning. I hope everybody's doing good this morning. I wanna welcome you and thank you for joining us today at Community Life Church on this absolutely phenomenal Sunday morning. My name is Scott Verano, and I'm the lead pastor here at Community Life, and it's an honor to have this time with you. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things you could be doing on a Sunday morning, and it means the world to us that, that you're either here or joining us online. At Community Life, we love God, we love our neighbor, and we believe that our mission is to connect people to Jesus, because we believe that Jesus is the source of life. And our hope is that when you've discovered that source of life, that you will tell absolutely everybody that you possibly can about Jesus. And if there's anything that we can do to stand alongside you in this journey, uh, we would love for you to let us know because that's, that's our mission. So if we can do that to stand alongside you and help connect you to Jesus, um, we would love to be able to do that. I appreciate Steve and the video. Um, in the other services, he got a round of applause, not because of what he said, but because he has such an awesome beard. No, maybe it was because of what he said. Um, Celebrate Recovery is such an incredible ministry at this church that really is, a, um, it's a process. So Celebrate Recovery is a process of, of, by which we work through the hurts, habits, and hangups of life. And um, what we're going to do over the next two weeks, not today, but over the next two weeks, is we're really going to highlight that ministry, and we're going to do something special in the two services. You are going to get a chance to hear, yes, a little bit of teaching, but you're going to hear testimonies from people who have experienced just tremendous life change in their hearts. Yes, about Celebrate Recovery, but more about what God is doing inside of them. Celebrate Recovery is just kind of the guide and, and the way that, that we work through that. But, but really, we're going to highlight them. So you get a lot of teaching on Sunday mornings. Once again, you're going to get that. But, um, but you'll be able to walk out of here and say, you will not believe the testimony that I heard today. So I'm so excited about that. We're going to do that in the next two weeks and, um, and really looking forward to it. But a um, couple quick announcements, and then we're going to jump into the message so uh, you've heard me talking about the gathering uh, coming up on Friday the 13th here in October. So ladies, don't let that nervous, uh, make you nervous. But is our women's gathering, um, it's, it's going to be just an awesome night. We're going to have food. We're going to have worship. There's a guest speaker. Her name is Casey Jordan. She's the author of Incognito, Discovering God in Everyday Moments. And uh, it's just going to be a fabulous night. So make sure that you get registered for that. There is a cost of $25, but it covers the food, covers everything. Um, if that is cost prohibitive for you, let us know, and we'll figure out a way to go ahead and cover it. We've had some folks that have donated some uh, scholarship money, and you can still do that if you want to help some others be a part of it. And what I know is that God works it all out, and um, it's going to be a fabulous night. If you have any skills in the food service industry, and you are not attending that night, but you want to help serve that night, uh, I'm going to be the head waiter which means I have to serve 240 women. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to need lots of help. So if you know anything about that or if you've worked in a kitchen, we've got a plate, 250 meals. I would love to talk with you after service. Get your name on a list and we'll get you set up. And that's just a way for us to tremendously bless the ladies as they, as they gather on that night. And then last but not least, the production team asked me if I would make this announcement. They are looking to really fill out their production volunteer positions. And so when you think production, think 
lights, think cameras, think mixing with sound, all of the stuff, right? We need people to help set up, help tear down. And um, so if that's something that speaks to you, we'd love to talk to you about it. If you're like, I'm interested in it, but I don't know how to do any of that stuff, we'll train you, right? Like the hardest thing to do is to sit on this camera and keep me somewhere in the screen, because I'm like an NFL player, man. If I juke you, you're going to go off the screen. It's hard to find me back on the camera. But they'll train you for how to deal with that. So, um, so on your way out today, stop by, see Jason or his, his team out there, and they'll get you all signed up. But I think the biggest thing to know, and this is hard to even imagine, but every Sunday morning, we have 250 to 300 people that log in online and watch the services. And this production team is the one that makes sure that the quality of what they're watching is good. So you get to be a part of that. So, so thank you for, for, um, for jumping in and, and joining them. Okay, so um, today is the last day in our series, The Gospel According to Matthew. And I'm a little sad because I've enjoyed this study, digging through it. But I'll just go ahead and, and, and set an expectation up front. And this is something that my, my dad used to tell me about. He's like, Scott, if you, you feel good about something, just go ahead and set the expectation and, and, and you'll see how people will rise to listen to that. And, and I'm, I, I honestly believe this, that there is a part of the scripture that we're going to study today that offers a truth that for me is probably one of the top five truths for me to wrestle with and to understand. And it's a new understanding for me as I've studied it. And so I look forward to delivering that to you, and, and I pray that the Spirit of God can help to get me out of the way and just and, and bring it in a way that it's clear, and it's when we talk about the moments of Jesus on the cross. And so we're going to unpack that at, at, at some point in the message today. But I wanted to go ahead and put that out there. So here's what we're doing. We are in this series called The Gospel According to Matthew, and we are looking at the Gospel of Matthew to study and understand what makes it unique from the other gospel messages? Now, I need to go ahead and establish this. We have one gospel, and it's the good news of Jesus Christ. But we've received that gospel message through four different accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one of the things that I have not said over these last four weeks is, is this, and this bears mentioning, is that these four writers did not just sit down on their own and start writing these accounts. We believe in our faith that they were led by the Spirit of God to put these, these words down on a sheet of paper so that they could rightly present to us and to all the generations a good biblical understanding of who Jesus was. And so I, I honestly believe that they were led by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So when I say to you that Matthew took this story and this story and he put it together trying to tell us this, I don't say that meaning that Matthew came up with a totally different understanding. I say that to say that I believe the Holy Spirit used Matthew to draw that truth out so that we could understand it. Does that make sense? So I believe that the Holy Spirit empowered Matthew to write this gospel. Now, who is Matthew? Matthew is, um, is believed to be one of the disciples that followed Jesus, Matthew the tax collector, and we know this to be 100% true. Maybe. We're not really sure about that. He doesn't sign the gospel. Um, but earliest church records indicate that these writings were attributed to Matthew. And so when you go back and you look at them, there's no reason for us to refute that. The way that he writes, the way it's all put together, it all seems like it goes with Matthew. And so that's the one that we give credit for it. Um, what are, uh, um, how did he put his gospel together? And this is going to be important for today. Um, it's believed that Matthew constructed his gospel by first starting with the gospel of Mark, which was already written, and then fleshing out the stories that Mark wrote that maybe Matthew knew more about, 
or just using Mac, a Mark in the way that it was written. But then he also takes writings that were captured during that time that really record some of the sayings of Jesus. He includes those in his gospel, but then Matthew rounds it all out with his understanding because he was there. And so he puts it all together in a way that, that makes sense. And what you have to know is that Matthew was writing to his congregation. So Matthew is Jewish, and his gospel is the most Jewish of all of the gospels. Now, why is that important? That's important because there's two threads that run through Matthew's gospel. The first one is this, is that for Matthew's congregation, he wants them to know that they, if they choose to believe in Jesus, then they are not abandoning their Jewish faith, but rather that, Jew, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And so if they choose to believe in Jesus, what they're doing is they're really believing in the full understanding and revelation of what their faith is all about. Because it was during that time that Matthew was writing this gospel that the other um, Jewish leaders were pushing these believers in Jesus out of the synagogues, trying to get rid of them because they didn't want them around. And Matthew's telling his congregation, no, 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 what you believe is true. In fact, it goes all the way back to the beginning that Jesus was spoken about all along and he is the fulfillment of our faith. The second thing that runs through his gospel message is this understanding that the message isn't just for the Israelites. It's not just for the Jewish nation but it's really for the Gentiles as well. And so if you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. And so what Matthew and the other disciples start to realize is that this message starts to make sense to the Gentiles and they respond to it. And so as he goes back and he studies, he finds the message of the Gentiles all throughout his text. And so he begins by connecting them to Abraham and then all the way through, you see lifelines that connect the Gentiles to Christ and that this message was for them as well. And we're going to look at that at the very end of, of our study today and how, and how Matthew brings it all together with the words of Jesus. So those are kind of the, the foundational points that you need to know about Matthew. Um, and if we were to go through and recap, and this is going to be the, very, the fastest recap that we've done, we started in weeks one and two looking at chapters one through four. And the biggest thing you need to know is that in chapters one through four, four Matthew builds a case based on genealogy, prophecy, he even bases it on the stars. Remember the story of the Magi? Uh, he bases it historically through personal testing and testimony and through heaven itself opening up and saying, this is my son in whom I, um, in whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. And so when you get to chapter five, you have this Jesus that's presented to you that didn't just show up on the scene. According to Matthew, he'd been spoken of all along and here he is as one that God sent for you. That was the first part of what we studied. Then in week three, we started to look at the teaching of Jesus. And probably the main thing you need to know about the teaching of Jesus is that for all the things that Jesus taught, it wasn't enough for us just to look righteous on the outside. For Jesus, he wanted those messages to transform our hearts. That it wasn't enough just to look righteous, he wanted us to be righteous and to do the work so that we represented God in this world. And then last week, we talked about what this, how Matthew orchestrated and put together his, his gospel, and he did it according to discourses. And so multiple discourses or teaching topics that he grouped all of his messages together in, and then he would connect them with different stories that would transition from one to another. And so we could have picked any single one of them to look at, but we chose the community discourse. And what this discourse is all about in chapter 18 of Matthew is how God expects or how Jesus expects us as believers to get along. How does he expect us to live in the faith and in relationship with one another? And here's the most profound truth that you will ever hear. That for believers, Jesus expects that we as believers will act 
like the one in whom we believe. That's rocket science, right? Like, I mean, it's hard to even imagine that, but that's the teaching. It doesn't sound like anything crazy, but that's what he says in chapter 18. The one that you believe in, you should actually act like him. You should forgive one another. You should remove the obstacles out of the way of one another, and you should do everything you can so that people can grow in their faith. That's what he teaches us to do as a community. And if we do that, then the people on the outside that are looking in will flock to receive this good news. That's the message that Matthew gives us about understanding um, the community, which then brings us to today, and and we're going to um, round out this gospel message and land this plane, if you will, and we're going to look at the last part of the gospel of Matthew, which is known as the passion narrative, chapters 26 all the way through chapter 28. And we're going to look at those last moments of Christ's life, what Matthew is trying to say. And in some cases, I think it's important to know that Matthew deviates from what Mark says because he's offering us an insight that maybe Mark either didn't know or didn't understand, and Matthew's going to shed light on it. And so in some of those cases, that's what we're going to do today. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 26. And um, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so go ahead and get spun up and get ready to go. And here we go. So in chapter 26, verse 1, Matthew, or Matthew writes this. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, and when you read that in Scripture, that means that you have to go back and figure out what all of these things were that he had just said. And here's what you need to know. From chapter 21 all the way through chapter 25. In chapter 21, you have the triumphal entry. Jesus goes into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple, and he starts to preach. And I'm going to tell you that as he's preaching, The messages that he's preaching, they're not just unicorns and rainbows. In fact, they're brutal. He's being brutally honest. He's speaking truth, and he's trying to get them ready for what's about to take place. And if you want some real lighthearted reading, go read chapter 23. Jesus specifically speaks to the Pharisees and the scribes, and at least seven times he calls them hypocrites. And he says, you hypocrites, you are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Have a nice day, right? I mean, you just can't even make it up. But that, Matthew wants you to know that that is the series of teachings that Jesus was delivering in the the temple as we lead up to this point and as we get ready. And so verses 1 all the way through 16 is the setup for the passion narrative. Matthew pulls back the veil and lets us know about the conversations that are going on behind the scenes to get us ready for this crucifixion. So it makes sense when you read verse two. And so Jesus said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. Well, if you go back and you read those sermons and the messages that he taught, you probably think he probably had it coming because of how honest and how brutal he was, they wanted nothing less than to get rid of this guy. They did not want Jesus around anymore. And so when he says this, Matthew is telling us a couple things. Number one, he was preparing the disciples. But number two, Jesus wasn't going to be surprised by this. He knew the messages that he taught would be harsh, and he knew that they would respond by taking his life. And so Jesus is aware of it. Verse three, and I'm going to read three all the way through 16, then we're going to come back and talk about it. It says, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in a place, gathered, excuse me, in the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. And they, listen to these words, conspired to arrest Jesus by by stealth and to kill him. But they said, not during the festival or there may be a riot among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him 
with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment. And she poured it on his head as he was sitting at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble this woman? She has performed a good service for me. For you always will have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, whether this Excuse me. Truly, I tell you, wherever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Look at the honor that Jesus bestows upon this woman that's in Bethany. It's it's unbelievable. It's incredible. Verse 14 through 16. Then one of the 12 who is called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I betray you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment, he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. This scripture, these scriptures really are just just incredible. So Matthew pulls back the veil and lets us see this conspiracy that's unfolding, right? He he wants us to know um, the the setup, what's happening, how it's it's all coming together, and um, it it caused me to think about something that, 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 that sometimes happens at my house. Any of you ever watch those those true crime shows, right? Like in, in husbands, if your wife is watching a lot of them and she's taking notes, <laughs> that's not good, right? Like you don't want her taking notes. Although I'll, ladies, I'll go ahead and tell you, none of, they all get caught. So just go with that. But, but think about this text in that way. The way that Matthew writes, he wants you to know that there's a conspiracy going on. He uses the word, they conspired to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. There's going to be an exchange of 30 pieces of silver, and they look for a way to entrap him. They're doing this by night in Caiaphas' house. He gives you the names of people. He gives you their titles. There's the festivals that are going on, but they don't want to do it during this time. And so it's important for you to know, as far as Matthew is concerned, that he sees the conspiracy, that Jesus knows what's, what's unfolding. But here in the midst of these two stories, the Caiaphas and the high priests and Judas taking the 30 pieces of silver, is the story of this woman from Bethany, right? And and it just seems like an odd place to find it. But let me tell you what I think Matthew's doing in that story. Is on either end, you have people who should have known better. People who should have known that Jesus was the Messiah and the messages that he's preaching are the truth. People that should have known. And then along comes this woman who really would have been discounted in life, And she shows up and she anoints Jesus. And you find the people who were least then or maybe aren't supposed to know. And they're the ones who get it better than anybody else. And you have this beautiful moment where this woman anoints Jesus. And me, she may not have known that she was doing this, but she prepared him for his burial. Man, it's such a beautiful part of scripture. And so Matthew pulls all that together for us. And so let's let's get rolling on. So then as you read on down, you have the Passover with the disciples and he goes into some detail on that. But then you get to verses 26 through 28. And this is the institution of the Lord's Supper. And and here at the end of the service, we're gonna receive communion together. And so it's important to to mention this. Um, Verse 26 says, excuse me, I gotta get some water. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And in this one moment, Jesus does something amazing. He does something amazing with the offering of the bread and the offering of the cup. 
he really does something prophetic. They don't understand what's going on, but he lets them know that he understands that his body is about to be broken and his blood is about to be shed. So once again, he sets into motion the awareness of what's about to happen. But he also does something that really offers them this instructive nature or this teaching element. He gives them the elements that were at the table, something that at the time they would have just not really thought anything about, right? It's a part of the Seder meal. Yes, Jesus does it differently, but for them, the bread and the cup would become so significant later on because it would remind them of that very special night. And Jesus did something so powerful that it didn't end right here in scripture. Guess what? We're still going to celebrate and we're going to remember today. And so Jesus gives us an anchor in our faith with bread and with juice that offers us this hope that really brings this story to life, that his body would be broken and his blood would be shed. It's prophetic, it's instructive, and Matthew is letting us know about it so that we can maintain it inside of our faith system. Then you go on and you read and you have Peter's denial foretold and, and then they, they get done with the Seder meal and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, inside of this story, there's, there's some interesting scripture, but really the big thing that Matthew does, it's not a big deviation from the other gospels, but Matthew um, talks about Jesus' prayer and he relates it almost to the prayer that Jesus gives the disciples. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As Jesus prays, he says, not my will, but thy will be done. And so he, you can see him making that connection um, inside the garden. But then you get to verse 50. And this is where Matthew deviates from Mark a little bit. And he gives us a word that Mark doesn't use in his gospel that offers us a truth that I'm going to tell you is, is amazing. And so Judas shows up, he kisses Jesus, and they go to arrest him. But he kisses Jesus, and here's what Jesus says in verse 50. Jesus said to him, friend, hold on to that word, friend, do what you were here to do. Then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. Jesus uses this word friend, and, and if you've been reading through the gospel of Matthew, you hardly see it anywhere else in the gospel. And so I'm going to tell you, when you're studying your Bible and you see a word that's kind of brand new or you haven't seen a bunch of it, pull it out, go look and see where else it shows up, because there's a truth that scripture is trying to reveal to you or that God is trying to reveal to you. And this word friend shows up only in two other places in the gospel of Matthew. And it's in that period of time where Jesus has given them the business. And that time between chapters 21 and 25 when Jesus is just preaching so hard. And there's two parables that he delivers. Um, one is the parable of the jealous laborers. And so, the, so the, the, the person who owns the vineyard sends laborers out into the vineyard and they go and they go work. And then there's other vineyards that, uh, laborers that show up late in the day and when they're all done and they go to settle up accounts, the vineyard owner pays them all the same amount. And the ones that were there all day, they, they get jealous and they get angry. And th these are the ones that Jesus refers to as friend. They get jealous and they get angry because why would they get the same amount as, as we got, right? And our minds were like, yeah, that doesn't seem to make fair until you start to see the greater truth. And you reference it to salvation, that the gift that God has given us, that we may serve God our whole lives and at the end we receive eternal life. And the truth is that people that maybe don't serve God their whole lives, in the end of their life, if they come to faith and an understanding, guess what they receive? Eternal life. It's the same reward that we receive. And so he's saying, friend, don't lose sight of the truth and the promise and what you've received. He's like, don't allow that jealousy to consume you. And so the word is used in the parable to speak to that jealous heart as friend. 
The second use of the, of the word in the parable, it's the, the person that shows up at a wedding feast irreverently. So you'll remember the, the story of how there's a wedding feast that the owner of the banquet wants to throw and he invites the guests to come and none of the guests show. And he invites them again and none of them show. And so he sends his servants out and he says, bring everybody in. And so everybody comes and there's this great feast. And so as the owner of the banquet hall comes in and he starts to look around, he sees someone that's there that is not dressed and prepared for the, for the banquet facility or, or for, the, for the wedding. And he says, what are you doing here? Why aren't you dressed in the appropriate robe? And then he throws them out of the wedding feast. And if you're reading that on the surface, you're like, what does that have to do with? And the spiritual significance is this. It's, it's the opening of the gospel to everybody to come in to, and to receive, but there'll be people that show up to the party and they have absolutely no idea what's going on. They don't know anything about the bride or the groom or the God that brought them all together and they show up and there's been no transformation in their life. And so this was who he re- relates to his friend. And so it's the understanding of transformation. And so for Jesus, he was using those words to speak to the religious leaders at the time. And so when Judas shows up in that garden, and he calls him friend. He allows us as the readers to know that he sees Judas' heart and he sees that he is a part of and that he's connected to and he clearly identifies his heart with what's unfolding in their world. Isn't it cool when you study that and you kind of see how all of that comes together? I think it is. Okay, so as we speed up and as we go through, right after this happens, um, one of the disciples, Peter, pulls out a sword and he goes and he chops off the ear of one of the, one of the priest's guards that are standing there. And Jesus says, well, what are you doing? Verse 53, he says, do you not think that I, he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? And so what Matthew wants his readers to know is that in this moment, Jesus had all of the power and authority to deal with these people that were coming to arrest him. But it was more important for Jesus that he allows scripture to be fulfilled and that he stay in the will of the father. And so he yielded to the father and he did what he was supposed to do. And so for Matthew's readers, Jesus is not a wild card. He is one that scripture is written about and one that was living into the promise and the design that God had spoken over him. And so Jesus lets them know, I'm gonna do what, the, what God has called me to do and, and this is it, put the sword away. So as you go on through, I think this is where um, there's a truth in scripture that that is, it just, it just jumps out and it's, it's easy for us to miss. Now, if you're not a person that typically will go to the services during Holy Week, during Easter, during that time, then it'd be easy to lose the time frame in the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus, right? We, we read that and we think it takes days for all of that to unfold. But the truth is that time frame is very, very short. And so on the night that Jesus was arrested, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's after the Seder meal, It's late in the evening. Some biblical scholars believe even closer to midnight, he's arrested. Then in the middle of the night, there is the arraignment of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, the condemnation of Jesus, the scourging of Jesus. And then they take and they place Jesus on the cross by 9 a.m. the next morning. Now, why is that important for us to know? Matthew wants you to know that this was all a sham. Matthew wants you to know that everything that was unfolding here was unjust. There was no way for Jesus to get a proper trial. These people decided he was guilty before it ever even happened. And so you just have to know the facts that it all happened in the middle of the night. It even happened when we weren't even there to see or to be a part of and to know what we could do and to try and shout out in his defense. 
And Matthew wants you to know that. And so, so here's what I want to do. I want to take and show you just a little bit of the dialogue between Pilate and the chief priests where, where Matthew once again reveals to us the heart of the chief priests and how bent they were on killing Jesus. And so um, you get over into chapter 27, you get down to chapter 17. And remember, Pilate has the freedom to release a prisoner back to the, to the Israelites during this time. And so he's seeing all of this stuff start to break out. And he thinks, I got to let a little bit of pressure off of this group. And so if I release back to them one of these prisoners, maybe they'll settle down a little bit, right? Verse 17. But, but listen to how Matthew puts all this together. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas, Barabbas the Savior, or Jesus who is called the Messiah, or, or Jesus the Messiah, the, the one that you call Savior, or the one that calls himself Savior. He says, but, but here's verse 18. Listen to this incriminating. For he, Pilate, realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. Pilate, a Roman governmental official, recognizes that the chief priests and all of those that are gathered there that out of a heart of jealousy that they brought Jesus there. He recognizes it. Can you see what Matthew's doing? He's incriminating them with, his, with, with this very truthful understanding. And then verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife even knew, sent word to him, have nothing to do with that, what? Innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? All of them said, let him be crucified. And he asked, why? What evil has he done? I mean, he is literally fighting for Jesus. But these guys are bent on crucifying him. But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And then verses 24 through 26. This is incredible when you understand the context. Pilate does something so powerful. So when Pilate saw that he could not, so that, that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And as we read that, we're like, yeah, that was awesome. Wait till you hear the real truth of what he did. Then the people as a whole answered, his blood be on us and our children. So he released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate does something so intuitive in this moment. He has the people that are there that are jealous that want to see Jesus killed. And Pilate takes water and he washes his hands. And we understand that today is washing the blood off our hands. I'm not guilty of this. But I want you to know that in Deuteronomy 21, in the faith system of the Jewish nation, if you were not guilty, you took water and you washed your hands. Pilate used their own faith system to indict them. Blew me away. It would have been a clear sign to all of them that he knew that they knew. And he washes his hands. Uh, you, when you understand this in, from the Jewish perspective of what Matthew is writing, it, it makes so much more sense to us. Okay. Um, all right. So now we're going to get to the part that I really want to really slow down and focus on. And I, and I need to say this before I read this, that um, this time with Jesus on the cross, uh, I started studying this a couple weeks ago and really diving into it for, really for a, a particular reason. There, there's a family in this church who 
Um, they just, they lost their son not long ago, passed away. And I, I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, I, I get the opportunity. I'm honored, Tammy and I, to stand alongside families all the time. Um, we've already been a part of two memorial services this week that were beautiful. We have this service for this son today, um, right after church. And there was something about this one that just did something to my heart. Um, I, don't, I don't know if it was the heart of the father, or the heart of the son, but it caused me to dive into scripture in a way that I never have before. Because there was an unsettledness that I had about this scripture that I, that I just didn't understand. And, and so I, I want to read for you what the scripture says, what our theological belief has been to this point, and then really what I believe is unfolding. And, and I encourage you to study it and to, and to see if God doesn't speak to your heart. But, um, but, but let me go ahead and read it. I'm going to read it all and then we'll come back. And so Jesus is on the cross, um, chapter 27, verse 45. It says, from noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with sour wine. He put it on a stick and he gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. But then verse 50, this changed everything for me. It says, then Jesus cried again. And some scholars believe that he made the same statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With a loud voice and he breathed his last. That's a deviation from what Mark wrote. And we're gonna talk about it in a second. He breathed his last. At that moment, do me a favor and say at that moment. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now this scripture, this set of scripture for hundreds of years has given rise to a, to a theology that's very important in our faith. And it's the theology that teaches us that, that in these moments, Jesus takes upon himself the total penalty for our sin that he bears that sin in his life. And, and, and so therefore, as the only spotless, as the only perfect human, he bears it. And because of that, um, is, is able to, is to, is to carry that sin away, right? So our theology says that, but here's what that theology has also said over the years. That when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The way we've interpreted that is to say that in that moment when Jesus took the sins of the world upon him, the father could no longer look upon him and had to turn his face away. There's a verse in, in Habakkuk that says that God's eyes are so pure that he cannot look upon the unholy. And so we've interpreted this as that in that greatest moment that the father abandoned the son and couldn't even look upon him. And, and that was the theology. That's what I've been led to believe for all of these years. And I want to tell you, yes, I absolutely believe that Jesus took that penalty of sin upon himself, but I do not believe that the father turned his face apart because listen to the theological challenges that that presents to us. If that's true, then in your life, when you get yourself into a difficult spot and you fall into sin and you find yourself a part of things that aren't true and aren't right and aren't just, and that means that God would turn his face away from you. Or if you have children that are in sin and they're living a life that is not in keeping with the scripture, what that tells us is that because God's eyes are pure, he can't look upon the unholy, that God's not watching after them. And I'm gonna tell you, I don't agree with that. And here's why. In this set of scriptures, 
Matthew does something so profound. And unless you understand it through the Jewish lens, there's no way that you can fully comprehend what Jesus is doing. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he actually does is he starts to recite the 23rd Psalm. As a good Jewish man reciting the Psalms is exactly what he would have done in his darkest of moments. But here's what's so powerful about the 22nd Psalm is the 22nd Psalm is a Psalm of lament. And it starts off with this question, can you trust the heart of God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I encourage all of you when you go home today to put this in your phone and listen to it. Listen to the words, allow it to be read to you. Because if you go through and you read the Psalm, it starts off with a question. But as you work your way through it, what the psalmist tells you is, oh yes, the heart of God can be trusted. He says, as they put the nails through my hands, as they put the nails through my feet, a psalm that was written hundreds of years before this would ever happen, he starts to reveal the truth that's unfolding. And ultimately, when you get to the end of Psalm 2022, the last phrase says, he's done it. He's had this, this victory has unfolded. And so what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's not questioning that God has turned his face away. He's telling the people around them to trust and believe in the God that would never turn his face away from them. And when you get to verse 50, the way that Mark writes this is that Mark says that Jesus expired. Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew says he breathed his last the Jewish understanding of our life is this. You go back to Genesis chapter two and read it, that God fashions us out of clay and then he breathes the ruach into our lungs. In the New Testament, it's the pneuma. He breathes the pneuma into our lungs. And when we finally breathe our last breath, we yield it back to him, something that doesn't even belong to us. And so what Jesus is doing in that moment is deciding that yes, the heart of the father can be trusted and he releases his breath back to God. And that's why it's so important for Matthew, for you to hear, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, the earth started to shake, and he goes on and he goes on about all the things that were accomplished. Because for Matthew, he wants you to know that the heart of the Father could be trusted. And that's to me, the message that Jesus was delivering us in those moments. He doesn't turn his face away from us in our most broken times. He doesn't do that. God is present to us in those moments, loving us, nurturing us, comforting us. Now, if you go on into chapter 28, um, you, you get to read the story of Jesus on resurrection day and, and, and he really follows the pattern of Mark, but, but he gives you a little bit more detail about how he reveals himself to Mary. And then you get down to verses 16 through 20 and um, I'll just go ahead and read these because this is how he closes out the gospel. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain. We all know that mountains are significant to, to Matthew because that's, the mountain is where you go to meet God to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Isn't it powerful that the disciples who were there for the resurrection of Christ to witness him and to be a part of him alive after death, they still had their doubts. That gives me hope that in my own broken brain and life, when I struggle, I want you to know I'm in good company. People who still struggle to believe and they were there. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why does Matthew write that or recount that again? Because his audience needs to know that that in this moment, Jesus had accomplished everything that the Father had sent him to accomplish. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of what? All nations. This gospel is not just for the Jewish nation, it's for all the nations. You see the open and the awareness for the, for the Gentiles, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And really what Jesus says is, go and do exactly what I did. 
Go and do exactly what I did. He said, in teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you and remember, and here's the final verse, I am, always, I am with you always to the end of the age. And if you go back to chapter one and he talks about God with us, he uses the word Emmanuel. He starts in chapter one with Emmanuel and he ends here at the end of chapter 28 with Emmanuel. The God that is with us always to the end of the age. And that's how Matthew pulls it all together. Amen? And so for me, as we close out and then we prepare our hearts for, for communion, if you were to ask me what was the most significant part of, of Matthew's gospel, it has to be chapter 27. It has to be chapter 27. Can, can you trust the heart of the Father? Because in front of Matthew in his congregation is a group of people that are Jewish and they believe in God. And now they're hearing the story of Jesus and they've, they've listened to scripture and testimony and healings and they've all of this where God shows up all along. But then when it seems the moment comes that Jesus should rise up and be the Messiah that they believe that Jesus should have been, what does he do? He yields his life and he gives it up. He doesn't take over. He doesn't trump God. He doesn't do any of those things. He yields his heart to God and he allows God to be the one that governs all the way down to his very last breath. And so as Matthew's congregation was asking this question, they're looking around at these Jewish leaders who are, who are kicking them out of the synagogues, that they're persecuting them, they're killing them, and they have to ask themselves the question too. Can the heart of the Father be trusted? And according to Jesus, the answer is yes. And I'll be honest with you, we ask this question to ourselves every single day. Can we trust the heart of the Father? In all of the brokenness and all of the hurting and all of the people in this world that have been shattered and are struggling, even people in the faith, people still being martyred for the faith today, can the heart of the Father be trusted? And when you read this scripture, as soon as or immediately after that breath is yielded, God starts to move. And here's what's so powerful. New life springs forward. The earth starts to shake. The graves are broken and life starts to spill forth. And so according to this story, according to my life and what I've experienced, according to your life and the things that you've experienced, can the heart of the father be trusted? And I believe the answer is yes. And I absolutely believe that the heart of the father can be trusted with our very own breath, which if you wanna be honest, doesn't belong to us anyways. And there will come a time where you will yield that breath back to God. And my hope and my prayer is that when you do that, that it will be with the understanding that you're giving it back to the one who gave it to you. And today you can open up your hearts and you can believe in this Jesus, this good news, who gives us life and gives us peace to live in those moments and find strength. Amen? I'd like to invite the communion stewards to come forward and and I know we're running a little bit late, but um, what, a, what a perfect way for us to solidify this message today and to really allow it to, to cement into our hearts. You know, probably one of the, the things that I love to most mention is how the disciples in those last days, they, they really had no idea. I mean, isn't it incredible that, that on that night when that woman from Bethany was anointing Jesus, that they missed the point and they missed it so bad that they were complaining that she wasted all that money on Jesus. And they just never had an idea. And the truth is that as we sit here today, I hardly ever have an idea. But what Jesus did for us at this table, it just is incredible. He knew we would never fully understand, but he gave us an anchor in our lives. Something as simple as bread 
in something as simple as juice that allow us to hold on to a truth that goes beyond our lives, a body that was broken and blood that was shed so that we can experience life. And the truth of this message is that when we gather around this table, we're not just doing something ritualistically. We are taking part in the greater story. And so it was on the night that he was betrayed that Jesus took bread. He gave thanks and then he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat, do so in remembrance of me. And then in the same manner, he took the cup. And he said, this cup represents a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink, do so in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you for this, this table, the message, the heart, the heart beyond, uh, the heart of your son that he would be so willing to, to pay such a price so that we 2,000 years later could experience hope and could experience freedom because of that price that he paid, his body broken and his blood shed. And God, in response to that, what do we do? We do the very same thing. We take this bread and we receive it. We take this cup and we receive it so that when we walk out these doors, we can live the very same way. We can allow our bodies to be broken and our blood to be shed so that people can see a better way to live a life that was given and broken for them so that they can find healing. I pray for all of the hearts that are here. Lord, I pray for everyone that holds breath in their lungs for as long as they do that. God, help us to understand the value of what that's about. And Lord, please do not let us waste one single breath to be used for your glory every step of the way. We love you. We trust you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So some of the things that I want you to know for this morning, um, you do not have to be a member of Community Life Church to receive communion with us. You're here, you're part of the family and uh, you're invited to join us around this table. We receive communion by intinction, which means if you'll come forward and hold out your hands, we'll place bread in your hands. You can take and dip that in the cup and receive communion that way. If you're worried about germs, we have individually wrapped communion elements at each station. Feel free to take those. Feel free to take a bunch of those home with you to, to give to other folks. Um, if you have a gluten-free allergy, come on down to the table. I'd be more than happy to, to serve you. Um, we have baskets on the stage. When we receive communion, we, we take up a communion offering. And this resource, we help people with water bills, electric bills. And, um, and we've started to do something that I think is so helpful. There's so much of a need for um, good counseling Christian help here in our community. And we're using it as a resource to help people find that good source of counseling. And so we're utilizing it in intentional ways to really help our community. And so thank you for, for doing that as well. Is that everything? Okay. Um, I believe that there are more of you than there are of us. And so I'm gonna trust that as you come forward, find a line, find a row that you can work your way into. And, um, and receive communion with us today. And so I invite the first few rows to go ahead and stand and make your way forward to receive communion. Born in my sorrow and dead in my sin Lost without hope with no place to
Oh, the 
this incredible lady did for Jesus. How incredible is it that she is forever attached to the story and the life of Jesus through her gift, through her sacrifice. Uh, what, a, what a beautiful story. If this is your first Sunday with us, if you're joining with us or you wanna learn how to get connected in a better way, come have a conversation with us right in the uh, next step room following this service. We'd love to find a way. If you're online, reach out to us uh, through those channels. We'd love to get you connected as well. Before we leave this place, let's pray, y'all. God, we love you. We are so grateful. And while we are completely undeserving of the gift that you gave us of life, of redemption, of freedom through your son, Jesus, we are so grateful for it. God, we are so thankful that, that you would see us right where we were, that you wouldn't turn away from us, but God, you would see us, you would love us and you would provide a way. So God, in that sort of spirit, in that sort of, uh, that sort of love, that sort of heart of giving, that you would allow us to leave this place and bring that sort of truth to the world around us. Wherever we find ourselves this week, God, the office, the classroom, our homes, God, Walmart and all places in between, God, help us just to, to live out that sort of faith, that sort of truth and awareness to those people we come in contact with. We thank you for loving us and we sure do love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. We love y'all, have a great week.